1 Kings chapter 18, last week we began a series that's going to last through the rest of the year on Wednesday nights on looking at the life and ministry of the great Old Testament prophet Elijah. And last week we looked at 1 Kings 17, the emergence of Elijah and why God was calling forth Elijah to step forward was because God wanted to use Elijah to spearhead restoring proper worship in Israel. The Israelites had abandoned the sole worship of Jehovah, and they had run after idols. We're going to obviously talk more about that in these weeks ahead. But tonight, I want us to see three crises in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're only going to go through verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, and then we'll pick up the latter half of this chapter next week. There's a crisis of food in the first six verses of 1 Kings 18. There's a crisis of faith from verse 7 through verse 15. And then there's a crisis of conviction from verse 16 through verse 21. In this passage also, God is going to use Elijah to restore proper worship. But along with proper worship comes revival. God wants to start a revival in his people. God wants to recapture hearts and bring his people back to him. And we're going to begin to see tonight a couple of sort of ingredients that are necessary for true revival. And the first one we're going to see is that God starts revival by asking his people to step out, to step up. You're going to see Elijah do that tonight, and we're also going to be introduced to a man named Obadiah who's going to be required to do that as well. Before we even get into it tonight, I want you to be open to this tonight. How? Not if, because God wants all of us as his people in some way to step out. How does God want me to step out for him in the days in which I'm living? How does he want me to step up in the days in which I'm living? Believe it or not, that's how revival starts, with some of God's people saying, I'm no longer going to be a spectator. I'm going to be a participant. I'm no longer going to sit back. I'm going to step out and step forward, and I'm going to step up, and I'm going to do something. I'm going to, to let God be known in some way through my life. I'm going to let my trust and my faith and my confidence in my God be seen by others in some way. How does God want you and I to step up? We know that's the case because notice in 1 Kings 18, again, looking at the first six verses, a crisis of food first, that sometime later, in the third year of the famine, so God, remember, last week, has shut off the rain for three years now. It's gotten really, really bad. 
But after three years, the Lord spoke to Elijah and says, go, make an appearance before Ahab. I, I want you now to be seen by the king. Now remember, Ahab doesn't like Elijah very much. Ahab's been looking for Elijah for the last three years. If it was up to Ahab and his wife Jezebel, if they could get their hands on Elijah, you pretty much know what they would do, right? And yet God comes to Elijah after three years and says, I want you to go and speak to the king. That's stepping up. That's stepping up. And the whole idea, too, is that if God is leading Elijah to do this, then God will make a way for Elijah to come before the king. So you and I don't have to worry about the details of how's that going to get done. If God's laying it on us to step up in some way, then God will also be in the details to get us there. So go make an appearance before I have notice, so that I may send, verse 1, or give rain on the surface of the ground. Now, obviously, God is talking here about physical rain and bringing then crops back and bringing food back to the people, right? Because they're suffering. But more than that, too, rain symbolizes the favor and blessing of God. And God not only wants to send physical showers of blessing on his people, he wants to send spiritual showers of blessing on his people, too. He wants to bring revival to his people, so when God says, I'm getting ready to send rain upon the surface of the ground, he's not just talking about physical rain. God wants to do so much more than that because the physical rain and the increase of crops and the increase of food isn't going to matter if God's people's hearts still are not with God, you see. So it's both and, it's not either or. So Elijah, notice, stepped up, verse 2, and went to make an appearance before Ahab. God starts revival by asking his people to step up, to step out. Now again, remember, in the first six verses, we're seeing a crisis, a crisis of food, because the Bible says at the end of verse 2, the famine, the hunger was severe. It was extreme in Samaria. What does this tell us? This tells us that God is willing to go to great lengths, to extreme measures in order to get his people to come back to him. He will go to great lengths and extremes to capture the hearts of his people, to get their attention, even as we talked about Sunday with Paul on the road to Damascus. Because God understands that if my people don't have me in their life, if they're not following me, if I'm not their all in all, they are missing out on life. They're missing out on all the blessings that accompany putting me first in their life and worshiping me and restoring proper worship to me instead of going after all these idols and false gods that don't even exist. So we need to remember that. Sometimes in our life personally and sometimes in our life corporately, God will take us through very severe circumstances in order to get our attention and try to bring our heart totally back to him. 
or to get us to the point where we're willing to step up and step out in some way. So notice verse 3, Ahab summoned a man by the name of Obadiah, whose name means servant of Yah, which is obviously short for Yahweh, so servant of God, servant of Jehovah, who, super, who supervised the palace. Now, Obadiah was a very loyal follower of the Lord. He had great respect and reverence toward God. So notice something here. God has different people in different places. God has an Obadiah on the inside and an Elijah on the outside. And going back to even then the call of God series, God doesn't call us all to the same place or to the same position. And what God was using Obadiah for on the inside was something totally different than God was using Elijah for on the outside. But each one of them had a role to play, a part to play, and each one of them was going to be required by God to step up and to step out in some way. God is looking for his people to step out and to step up. When Jezebel, in fact, was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah took 100 prophets and hid them in two caves in two groups of 50. He was the instrument of God's protection for God's prophets. Sometimes God will use us in a way to protect God's people. Not just physically. Sometimes God says, I want you to protect them emotionally. Sometimes I want you to protect them spiritually. But we sometimes are called by God to step out and to step up and be, in a sense, an instrument of protection for others in some way. Maybe that's what God's calling you to right now. He also, though, notice verse 4, brought them food and water. So not only was he God's instrument of protection, he was also God's instrument of provision. In some way, he was practically providing for the needs of these prophets that he was hiding. And once again, that's a way that you and I can step out and step up as God. Is there somebody that you want me, in a sense, to be your instrument of protection? Is there somebody, Lord, that I know that you want me to be an instrument of provision for them in their life. Ahab told Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. And here's where, again, we see the crisis. Maybe we can find some grazing areas so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of them. Because basically it was getting so bad that they were having to kill these animals in order to survive. So they divided up, verse 6, the land between them. Ahab went one way and Obadiah went the other, which isn't just describing a physical separation. It is reminding us that these men are on two different roads in their life, right? you got Ahab on the road towards worshiping Baal, and you've got this man, Obadiah, who's actually been placed by God in the palace to actually, you know, be a servant to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and yet in his own way, he is being used by God right there in the palace at that point to, to hide God's prophets, to provide for God's prophets, to know sort of some inside, get the inside scoop of what they're planning and what they're doing and all that. And they're both going different ways because we've learned Obadiah was a loyal follower of Jehovah, a crisis of food. So the first six verses, among many other things, again, reminds us the extremes that God will go to to bring his people 
back to him. And he's looking for us to step up and to step out because when you and I are willing to step out and step up, it doesn't just affect us. It has a positive effect or can have a positive effect on other believers. In fact, to illustrate that, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but let me read a couple verses out of the book of Philippians chapter 1. Because this principle of Paul stepping out or stepping up for the Lord shows that he influenced other Christians to step out and step up as well. He says to the Philippians in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel situation, being imprisoned. The whole imperial guard and everyone else knows that I am in prison for the sake of Christ. Then he says this in verse 14, And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying, because of my willingness to step out for God, even to the point of being in prison for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his gospel, it fired up other believers. It lit a fire in them. It ignited them to step out and step up. And instead of holding back, instead of being a spectator, now they were willing to be a participant and speak the word of God fearlessly. That's why God causes people to step out and to step up. And that's why it begins to start a revival, because that kind of faith is contagious. And that kind of faith in God's people begins to spread, and it begins to light off lights and fire from one life to another life, you see. Back to 1 Kings 18. We see a crisis of faith, though, because Obadiah, as we've seen, verse 7, was a loyal follower of the Lord and, and served the Lord in, in many ways. But now... <laughs> Just like God does with us, now he's going to be asked to, to trust God to a level that he's never trusted God before. And that's a crisis of faith. And God will do that in our life. When we get, in a sense, comfortable, even in the right kind of way, with the way we're living and, and what, you know, what we're doing, God will come in at some point and say, okay, now let's go a little bit further. He's always going to try to stretch us to trust him more and more and place more confidence in him. He'll only let us sort of there at that level for only so long, and then he's going to come in in some way or through someone and say, okay, time to get further out of the boat and time to go back and walk on the water a little bit, and that's where Obadiah is because notice what happens. Obadiah was traveling along, 1 Kings 18, 7. Elijah met him. When he recognized him, he fell face down to the ground and says, is it really you, my master Elijah? Because remember, the people of God didn't know what happened to Elijah. God hit him, right? And they haven't seen him for three years. In fact, all practical purposes, some of them maybe even thought, like with Enoch back in the book of Genesis, maybe God just took him to heaven. Maybe he's not even around anymore. They, they don't know. So obviously he's... He's excited to see Elijah and the fact that, you know, he's still alive and all that. But then notice, verse 8. He replied, 
Yes, go and say to your master, Elijah's back. Which remember, Elijah means Yahweh's God. Obadiah said, don't, don't miss this, right? Because he's a great servant of the Lord, but he says, what sin have I committed that you're ready to hand your servant over to Ahab for execution? If I go back to the king and say, I found Elijah, you, see, you, see what's happening here. And, and the reason we can identify with Obadiah is we do the same thing. He begins to, to think through all the scenarios of the what ifs, right? If I go back and tell King Ahab that I've seen you, he's going to think I've hid you. And then maybe it's even going to get out that I hid these other prophets and I'm, my life's over. Or maybe he thinks that you and I have been in cahoots or something. I knew where you were all along and now I'm just, you know. And then he says, verse 10, as certainly as the Lord your God lives, my master is sent to every nation and kingdom in an effort to find you. They've not let one stone unturned, Ahab and Jezebel, trying to find Elijah because they want him dead. And when they say he's not here, he makes them swear an oath that they could not find you. Now you say, go and say to your master, Elijah's back? And notice he, he even has this scenario. He says, when I leave you, the Lord's Spirit's going to carry you away so I can't find you. Because it's almost like even in Obadiah's mind, it's like uh, God has given Elijah this supernatural ability to be able to sort of transport himself, sort of like Star Trek, you know, like, zoop, you're gone, you know. Like as soon as they get close to Elijah, he just disappears and God sends him somewhere else. That, that's what he thinks. But what I want you to see is this is all scenarios that are playing in Obadiah's mind. And so what is Obadiah again expressing here? He's expressing more of an awe of Ahab than he is of God. And worship at its basic level is when our awe of God is so great, we are in awe of nothing else but God. And Obadiah isn't there yet. That's why this is a crisis of faith. God wants to get him there because God wants him even though he's going to be afraid to step out and to step up and do what God's asking him to do, it's not that he's going to get rid of the fear. It's that he's going to be willing to do it in spite of his fear because he knows this is what the Lord wants him to do. Some of you may be waiting to step out and step up because you want God to take away your fear first. God doesn't work that way. Trust me, I've been doing this for 36 years. God doesn't take away my fear before a Sunday or a Wednesday night. I just get up and start doing it, and as I'm doing it, God takes it away. That's what God will do with you. That would not be fair, Obadiah says at the end of verse 12, because your servant has been a loyal follower of the Lord from my youth. That's just not fair. Well, guess what? Life isn't fair, right? And, and the loyal follower here is the idea that it's describing one who worships God, one who is to be in awe of the Lord. He says in verse 13, certainly my master is aware of what I did when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophet. Now, he's, 
He's trying to say, you know what, I, I, I've served the Lord. It's, it's not like I don't want to serve the Lord or I haven't served the Lord, but you're, you're asking me to basically, uh, it's a suicide mission. Now you say, verse 14, go and say to your master, Elijah's back, he's going to kill me. Now again, remember, Obadiah is doing exactly what you and I do every once in a while with God. We start rehearsing all these what-ifs or all these scenarios that we think is going to happen. That guess what? Never happened. Because God simply wants us, as we even said Sunday, to go when he says go. And he's not necessarily going to tell us how it all works out. He just wants us to get to the point where when we have these crises of faith, we trust him. And we do it whether we, and that we don't allow all the scenarios to override what we know God is leading us to do. Because if we truly trusted God, then we would understand that whatever God's leading me into, he's already there anyway. He goes before me, and he'll work out all the details, and maybe much of what I'm cooking up in a sense in my own head and in my own mind won't ever materialize anyway, which is exactly what happened, by the way. And notice, I think, where this turns with Obadiah. Elijah says to him in verse 15, as certainly as the Lord who rules over all lives, whom I serve, I will make an appearance before him today. I think what struck the heart of Obadiah was the phrase, the Lord who rules over all. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord who is the army of one. The Lord who rules and reigns over the universe in which he created. And he's very much alive and he's very much active. Because again, remember, why is there a crisis of faith? Because Obadiah is more in awe of what Ahab will do to him at this point than he is being in awe of God and trusting that God will take care of him. See, Ahab's become bigger in his perspective than God has. And that's why you and I need to get back to proper worship. Because when you and I are properly worshiping God, God becomes the biggest thing by far. And nothing else compares to him. And when we are in all of God, we're in all of nothing else but God. We fear nothing else. We live fearlessly. We live confidently because God's got us, you see. Tonight, we are reminded that even in this setting that our circumstances are not a mistake, that God is at work around us and seeks to work through us. God is always in control. It doesn't matter how corrupt government becomes. It doesn't matter if the land is saturated with pagan worship. It doesn't matter if we are oppressed on every side. It doesn't matter if it looks like God has been completely removed from every walk of life. God is still in control. He is still the Lord who rules over all. And we too often allow the circumstances of what's going on around us, again, to somehow dictate how big and great our God is and whether he's in control or not. We can't do that. 
That's where the crisis of faith comes in. And I think when Elijah said, the Lord that you serve, Obadiah, remember something, remember who he is, so that Ahab becomes much, much smaller, and your God, the Lord who rules over all, becomes much, much bigger. Finally tonight, verse 16, we begin to see a crisis of conviction. And notice, Obadiah, just like Elijah, stepped up and stepped out and went before the king and informed Ahab. The king then went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, verse 17, he said to him, is it really you, the one who brings disaster on Israel? Notice, who's getting the blame for all the bad stuff that's happening? The prophet of God. This calamity is your fault. Now, again, when you think through, that doesn't even make logical sense. You're the one that's worshiping this Baal God, right? And he's the one that supposedly controls the weather. So why are you blaming God's prophet? If you really believe that Baal controls the weather, then isn't it his fault that it hasn't rained for three years? And why can't you make him bring rain? If he's a real God and he really controls the weather. Just reminds us of how illogical those that oppose God really are. Elijah replied, I've not brought disaster on Israel, but you and your father's dynasty have. Whoa. Folks, he's not just talking to anybody. He's talking to the king who's been after his hide for the last three years. This statement reminds me of Proverbs 28.1. The righteous are as bold as a lion. See, Elijah has come to worship God and, and the He's in such awe of God, he can stand before the king at that point, and he can let him have it. And if the king wants to take his life, fine, because Elijah understands, my God's the one who rules over you, and if he wants my life to end by your hand, so be it. My God's still the one who's in control. And notice, he tells him, you're the one that's brought this about, because you have abandoned, you have forsaken, you have departed from the Lord's commandments. And not only that, you have followed the Baals. You have run after and pursued false gods. And when I thought about that, I thought that's exactly the way it is in all of our lives, which is why, again, worshiping God wholeheartedly is so important. Because, again, there's a spiritual void within every human being. And if we're not worshiping God, then we're going to end up worshiping something or someone else because our heart is a spiritual vacuum and it, and it, it can't stand to be emptied. It's got to be filled with something. So listen to this, this verse out of the prophet Jeremiah real quick. And again, you don't have to turn there, but let me read it to you, if I can just turn one more page. Here we go. Jeremiah 2.13, if you want this reference. Jeremiah says to the people of God, 
Do this because my, or God, actually God speaking to Jeremiah. Do so because my people have committed a double wrong. And it's the same double wrong that we see happening back in 1 Kings 18. They not only rejected God, but he pursued Baal. Here's what God says. They have rejected me, the fountain of life-giving water, and they have dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns which cannot even hold water. That's always the problem. If we're not fulfilling our lives or satisfying our lives with God or filling our lives with God, we're going to fill it with something or someone else. If we're not pursuing God, then we're going to be pursuing something else, which is why God is calling his people back to him and to restore proper worship in Israel so that they'll stop wasting their life going after things that never help them, never care about them, don't love them, don't do anything for them. That's God's motivation. So back to 1 Kings 18. Elijah says to the king, now send out messengers to assemble all Israel before me at Mount Carmel, as well as the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah whom Jezebel supports. 850 against one. And by the way, did you notice something? Who's calling the shots at this moment? Is it King Ahab? No. It's the prophet of God. It's like he's taking control of the situation. He's telling the king what to do. That's how bold and confident Elijah is. A showdown needs to happen. In a sense, a battle of the gods. And here's the thing. We're going to see this next week, that famous scene on Mount Carmel. God welcomes it. You know why? Because God's never lost a battle. God's willing to take on any other false god because he's going to win. And he's going to especially show his people that these things and these false gods and these idols that you're running after, they don't even matter. But I love you. And if you follow me, you'll have the best life you could ever imagine. So Ahab sent messengers to all the Israelites, had the prophets assemble at Mount Carmel. And here's the real crux of what we're going to get to tonight. This crisis of conviction. Elijah approached all the people and said, how long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? Literally in the Hebrew, it means dance around. You are dancing around and you've never really settled on truly worshiping God wholeheartedly or following him fully. And the time has come. You got to make a choice. You see, there is a constant call for conviction from God's people throughout the Bible. And notice what Elijah says to God's people. If the Lord is the true God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. But make up your mind who your God is and then wholeheartedly be all in with that God instead of dancing around between both or having both as your dance partners, if you will, to keep up with the analogy. Notice something else. Elijah doesn't say, if you like your God, follow him. If you understand your God, always follow him. If you agree with your God, follow him. No, no, no. It's just, if you figure out that he's God, then you better follow him. If he's God, then you need to follow him. Because one day, 
everyone's going to give an account to our Creator. So figure out who your God is and wholeheartedly follow Him. A call of conviction because there was a crisis amongst God's people. This, these weren't people that weren't, they, they were pagan from the start. These were God's people, and yet they were never fully all in with God. And because I said that this is a call that you see throughout the Bible, I just want to remind you of some passages where we see the same call upon God's people. If you go back to the book of Joshua, many of you know where I'm going here. Joshua 24. Now obey, verse 14, the Lord and worship him with integrity and loyalty. Put aside the gods of your ancestors who worship beyond the Euphrates and in Egypt and worship the Lord. If you have no desire to worship the Lord, then choose today whom you will worship, whether it be the gods whom your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But I and my family, we will worship the Lord. Call of conviction. Make up your mind and follow the Lord fully. If you go over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says these words. Sorry, takes me a while to turn pages. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No man or no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or material things. A call to conviction. And finally, Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Revelation chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus says to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Call of conviction. It's exactly what Elijah is saying. How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? You've never really landed all in with God. And my friends, that's what revival is all about. When God's people choose to follow him fully. When he's number one. You see, revival can begin when God's people begin to step out and step up like Elijah did and like Obadiah did. At the direction, obviously, of God. But there's also then going to come amongst God's people a crisis of faith and a crisis of conviction. Am I going to trust God more than I've ever had to trust him before? Absolutely. And am I really following God fully? Or is it like, well, I'm in with God, but I'm also dancing with these other things. I'm sort of worshiping them too. God says, 
got to be me first. Got to be all in with me. And the great thing is, if you know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, and we're going to see this next week, hope you'll come back. The great passage. The people of God recognize that Baal is no God at all. And that Jehovah is the one true God. And they begin to see proper worship restored in Israel once again. How does God want you and I to step out and step up today? And we even sung about it tonight, that crisis of conviction about being all in with God. My one, my all, Jesus. No other one but you, God. You are number one. That's what God's looking for today. He's looking for people who are willing to be all in with him and put it all in with him. When you and I leave this earth and we go to be with Jesus for all of eternity, we're going to wish that we didn't leave, in a sense, anything on the battlefield. That we, or we, that we left it all there. We didn't, we didn't save anything back. We just poured it all out for God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the story of Elijah. We pray, God, that it would ignite within us a fire that would not grow dim. God, we know that the days in which we live are challenging and difficult, but God, may we never judge you by our circumstances. And may we never be in awe of anyone or anything else more than we are in awe of you. May we begin to restore proper worship in our own lives. And may we continue to keep proper worship in our church so that, God, you are so big and you're so great and you're so magnificent that, God, whatever is happening out there in the world pales in comparison to you, God that we remember and, and remind ourselves through our worship that you are the Lord who rules over all. And no matter what is happening out there in the world, you're still on your throne and you're still in control. And that will never change. So God, embolden your people today. May we be like Proverbs 28.1, as bold as lions. And may we be confident, God, in you and in what you're directing us to be and to do. It's not that we're not going to have to battle some fear, maybe even some trepidation. But God, help us to have enough faith in you that we're willing to step out and step up even in spite of our fears, knowing that you are calling us out, God, and we're going to follow no matter what. We trust you that much, God. Build that kind of trust in your people here at the Oasis and beyond. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.